Hey, I'm Tabuli, and we're recording from the Map Room, where we're going to talk about Atlas Altera, a creative project that's all about retelling the story of humanity with a world map gone off kilter. So 10 years ago, I wanted to make a map of the world, but it wasn't just going to be any kind of map. I wanted it to be filled with fictional and yet real places. It was going to be a creative way of retelling our story. This time, there would be more characters, and in this case, I'm using the backdrop to tell the story. I incorporated adjacent possibilities at different points in history so that it was going to be a collection of things that could have been. But the interventions didn't stop there. Soon I found more unorthodox ways to tug at historical strands. Strands that could have unraveled given the right geographic conditions. And then I created a website for my map. And I wrote the lore with this kind of pseudo-academic voice in the style of geographers who were writing in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And then I posted my map on the internet. And well, now I'm going to tell you some more. This is going to be my way of giving you some more insight into the project. In each episode, I'm going to sit down with my friend Tristan and we'll have a conversation over what I did for a specific area on my map. If you're listening to this as a podcast, you can find graphic visuals and my complete map on the website atlasaltera.com. And if you're on YouTube, we'll help you follow the discussion with a screen capture recording of us moving to and focusing on different areas on the map. So we recorded today's episode a week ago, and normally we'll be discussing specific areas and regions on the map, but for this episode, I thought we'd just try to cover some overall themes and explain the project a little more in general. So here it is. Mm-hmm. Wait, there's one thing I thought we should talk about. Wait, just is it recording? Don't tell me it wasn't recording this whole time. Oh, no, it was recording. Okay, cool. I just wanted to make sure. Okay. I was... All right, I think it's recording. To the map room. To the map room. So we're here in your in your office space, surrounded by your maps, right? Yeah. We've got two of the prototypes, right? So you have one, which is called Wealth of Nation, mm-hmm. with all the little um, corner maps mm-hmm. you developed, and then one which is like the chronographical... Choreographical. Choreographical, sorry. Yeah. Regional map. Yeah. Right? So why am, why am I here? Why are you here? Well, well, you are here to react and to prompt me with your reactions. Because I have a hard time talking about this thing. So what are your first impressions of this project? Well, I remember when you didn't really have the actual map yet. You had fragments of it and it was not even in Photoshop yet. It yeah, was in that was previous... So in the previous uh, software, I don't even know, it was like paint. No, no, like Macromedia that. 2004, yeah. Fireworks. But yeah. you had already like 300 pages of uh, manuscript, which you'd written over time. Right. So you had the idea in your head, and you would explain it to me different ways, and it was kind of, yeah, it was really cool, but it would... It was hard to catch up It on. would become very overwhelming right. uh, after a certain amount of time. And so actually having the map really helps to explain your vision. Mm. Tell me in general terms what what this project is about, when you started it, uh, what it means for you, and how you use it as a device to explore different dimensions of geography. Okay. Well, let's start with a simple one. Like, what are we looking at? So I started this 10 years ago. 
uh, with an idea of just doing kind of weird alternate history stuff. It was like a hobby. It was, uh, you know, I was young. I had ju- just started college. Or I had, no, I actually hadn't started university yet. But um, what I realized was that I was just kind of cannibalizing history and geography. And uh, to, to be someone who really actually loved geography, um, I realized that this was actually counter or contrary to everything about geography that I was learning. This practice that I was doing, doing alternate histories with all this kind of uh, imperialistic kind of weird risk or uh uh you know kind of like civilization or or europa universalis kind of logic that i was doing so i caught i kind of caught myself there but then i i couldn't i couldn't stop doing it and so it kind of evolved and i had this idea of what if i kind of did this as like a way to um chronologically kind of or like write down my impressions of different parts of the world that I was learning about because I would just surf the internet or read books about different places in the world and this was a kind of a really good way of um, remembering or helping me remember or record what I learned and my impressions of what I learned right like do you remember you used to when you first uh, saw my map you're like this is this explains a lot yeah, like exactly. The, the grains. It seemed like you knew about like different, very like, niche aspects. Yeah, like biogeography, anthropology, uh, zoology, and yeah, like, grains from all over the world. Like, how does this guy? What's his structure? What's his framework in which he kind of references all that? So when I saw the map, it made sense. Yeah. So here, we, okay, so we have a map. You're talking about all these different things. Why did you choose to represent it using like political boundaries? Right. Okay. So that's a good question. So basically. Uh, I just remember as a kid how my understanding of the world was always shaped by the classroom world map. Uh, the world map was always in the political uh, form. And, you know, you can think of the American cliche of where they had those, like, kind of roll-up maps that you can pull down. The political one would be at the top, and then you could, like, pull down a new one, and that would be topographical, like terrain. Um, and then you might have one for climate, but that'd be very advanced. I don't think most kids learn about climate in a geographic sense like that. Um, but anyway, so, uh, I remember that as a child, uh, and all my classmates, the way we reacted to the world, we would like have these very weird ideas of what this map was supposed to represent. So we'd be like, oh, Russia is so big and oh, China is so big. India has the largest population, the kind of things that we were made to learn and take notice was for me kind of very weird uh, and like it was kind of a bad way to equip us with really coming to mutual understanding of other cultures and I thought that was kind of what geography's purpose was so yeah so the point of this is to flip that idea to flip the political world map uh, um, and use that as a way to help people learn what they weren't able to learn in the original form because you know you know the medium is the message um, in this case, the medium of the political world map will allow them to see something familiar when everything else is unfamiliar. So I'm trying to use, like, it's not that, like, I'm not trying to say that the political boundaries of this world map are ideal. It's not some irredentist fantasy. It's not like a, a obsession over the nation state or to say that every country needs to be its own nation. Um, it was just a kind of, it started off as a creative way of, resurfacing things that have been erased or submerged or marginalized 
Now, actually, I want to add one rule that I had when I began the project, when I just started to say, like, what if I could represent different languages? Uh, my rule was that I had to represent uh, living languages, r real languages, and uh, if they were kind of, uh, if they might have been, uh, ex like, if they went extinct, they had to have some kind of revitalization potential. So there had to be programs ongoing or in the works for revitalizing the language. There, there were some exceptions to this kind of rule. Um, and I mean, this is a work of fiction after all, and my creativity did get away sometimes. Uh, but I think we will get to those, we'll get to those exceptions as we focus on different areas of the map. What's most striking when you look at the map is the, the boundaries that you chose. So what was the um, rationale that you used to, uh, modify the boundaries right the weird thing is uh at first you know there's a bit of a carryover with that kind of immature stage there's like countries like deseret which uh are kind of like an alternate history cliche you know having the mormons um be in part of this map um and there's kind of weird things where i had a conlang of uh anatolian celtic but other than that other than those carryovers which are kind of like ghosts from that immature past the other parts, the other boundaries represent the kind of rule that I set for myself when I started to think of this project in a different way. So what do you mean, sorry, by immature past? The immature past was like what I was getting at earlier when I was saying how I realized I was just like cannibalizing history and geography and just uh, performing imperialistic kind of logic in this game that I was doing. So at first you had um, kind of a kid's perspective, status quo, geography, 19th century yeah. way of looking at the world yeah and, and, and then as you matured you and you learn more about geography and anthropology yeah uh, the way of devising the world was refined more along the lines of linguistics uh, it all became relativistic right I, I lost my anchor point and because at first I started going like what if Portugal did this what if Spain did this they're all European countries um, and so yeah the, the point was I started understand appreciating the, the diversity that actually exists in humanity all the linguistic, cultural kind of traits that make us unique and are worth kind of like celebrating. So anyway, uh, back to the boundaries, my, my rule became that I had to have, uh, I wanted to try to represent one language per language family. And in areas where there was high linguistic diversity, let's say Papua New Guinea, which has like more than 60 language families on one island, then it was, uh, it was harder to do that and in other areas I might have been able to do one language per branch of a family so a lot of the European branches I could have one per branch but uh, in Papua New Guinea I could only have one per family which if you think about it that means for all Indo-European you could just say I pick German and you would lose Farsi you would lose Hindi you would lose English you would lose all the Celtic languages all the ro Romance languages you would just have German no Swedish no none of the Nordic languages so that would be one tier down yeah. So the equivalent of a language family is Indo-European. <clears throat> yeah. Whereas in Papua New Guinea, the Indo-European class or tier there's of 60 language, of there are 60 of them in one branch. Yeah. And no, not for, branch. There's 60 uh, of them in one in the scale. Island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Whereas Indo-European, which is one family, yeah. has, has all the space. Has like a branch in like French, uh, Spanish, yeah. Hindi, Farsi, Swedish. Yeah. And I could get one branch of those. I could get each one for each of those branches. Which just shows the diversity of, of languages Papua, yeah. within Papua New Guinea. Yeah. 
And so yeah, so that was one one rule, and the other rule was to try to like ex- uh, explore with different ways to get more religious diversity. Like there are different points in times when certain cultures waxed and waned, and like the, I guess like the general rule of thumb, other than that, like what the goal was for the linguistic and cultural diversity, the general rule of thumb was to make historical impacts less than they were wherever I could, which is just, which is to say to make winners in history win less so that losers can lose less. And so that there are different like uh, adjacent possibilities that can blossom. Um, yeah. So that yeah. like so the alternate history part about this, it's not methodically sound in the sense that alternate history enthusiasts would like, but it's already kind of like a flawed idea. It's a what I, at the end of the day, it's a creative device. It's a literary device, and I'm using it in as many interventions as possible in points of history, regardless of the butterfly effect. But I'm still trying to be plausible in the sense that. I'm trying to control as much as the change to be consistent and to reflect our general trajectory in world history. So the second striking element of this map, when you look at it, is the alternate geography. You have certain right. seas where there aren't. You have certain islands which yeah. are submerged. So what was uh, your thinking with that? So that was uh, a bit childish. But what happened was I started when I started learning about these. Uh, land masses that were just very in like very shallow bodies of water or that there were these low-lying areas that could easily flood um, if sea levels rose what I kind of realized from all this is that these were kind of creative ways for me to intervene uh, to bolster certain kind of linguistic areas uh, from from kind of like imperialistic or conquering forces that would have happened in history for example uh, in Eurasia, um, the Indo-European language family, especially the Slavic branch, only about, about in the 15 and 1600s really eclipses the Finno-Ugric and Turkic language families, as well as like independent bran- uh, families like Yenisei. Um, or like, let's say, like uh, um, an intervention I did with Australia, which is not the Australia of our, our world. It's this landmass that is called the Kerguelen Plateau, in the South Indian Ocean, this landmass, I'd used it, I, I surfaced it because I thought it would be a good analog to our timeline's Newfoundland culture, like Newfie people, um, kind of like, you know, this kind of remote castaway fishing station. And, which is in Eastern Canada. Yeah, which is Newfoundland's in Eastern Canada. But in my map, uh, this Eastern Canada part, the, the kind of uh, Viking kind of... Uh, Nate, uh, Viking contact, or not Viking, sorry, the, the Norse contact happens and kind of is sti- sticks in Newfoundland, as well as the Basque fishing fleets. They kind of get their own little hold off of Newfoundland. So I needed a new place to put that Newfie culture. So what ended up happening is actually I, I surfaced quite a few little landmasses that actually exist in underneath the water in our world. Um, I use those places as places to dump real uh, settler cultures that, you know, people probably, you know, this is a Western audience we're talking to. They would still kind of want to see happen. So you have like, uh, like Australia, New Zealand, all of them, their cultures are still existing, but there's been huge interventions to allow for things that have been submerged by their present existence. There's like, yeah, anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you talked about climate as well. So changing 
world geography definitely changes the climate as well. So did you take that into consideration? Yeah. Yeah. So what happened was, um, like, I'm, I'm pretty good phys- with physical geography. And what happened was I did a lot of, like, looking into different points that would have huge impacts and different points that would have minor impacts. So let's say the Black Sea in my map, this area here, uh, I found would have minimal impact if it became flooded. Um, And it would have like the same kind of uh, distribution as the Hudson Bay would have in North America uh, in terms of the climate pattern. Um, And an enlarged Caspian Sea wouldn't make uh, the central steppe even more humid. So I, I did those kind of interventions to have fun with like creating barriers for let's say like Russian expansion or like different kind of cultural groups to have like more geographic boundaries. And then let's say like in South America, I learned you know really quickly that if I connected South America to the Antarctic Peninsula, you would uh, change global climate like uh, irreparably because the uh, Antarctic circumpolar current makes most of the world a lot cooler than what it could be and so like the interventions i did like let's say in australia or the kerguelen plateau the australia on my map i had to make sure that um it existed and it actually does exist the plateau underwater but i had to make sure that it didn't occupy too much latitude breadth or else it would ruin that current flow so which of those uh change geographies do you think has the most impact so the greatest impact that i intended to have was to actually make the patagonia desert a lot more uh humid because uh it's a lost opportunity in my in my thinking in that um a a minor continental climate could exist on the eastern side of it it's just because the cold current coming from antarctica Mm -hmm. goes so much more north on the east coast okay I would say, like, that, for example, that inner sea in Australia, or... Oh, okay. That would have had, like, quite a big impact on on the very hot yeah. climate in, in Central, which, in your map, again, is not called Australia, is... It's uh, Tamiria, the Tam- continent. Tamiria continent, yeah. right. Uh, it, it's actually from Tapra Bain, um, which was, like, a, a name for Ceylon. It, it has to do with copper. Um, Ceylon, right, which yeah. is Sri Lanka. Yeah, but uh, one of its ancient names was uh, from a city called Tap- Taprabane mm. or uh, Taparabana, I think. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying this off the top of my head. But I like the idea of copper because like Sumatra was the land of gold. That's the etymology behind that. And um, Tamiria, land of copper, kind of would be like a metaphor for its soil, the red soil. But anyway, so the point is, um, actually, it's it's good you brought it up. I forgot to mention this. That was actually a major uh, decision. I did that inland sea going from the north to the south because I wanted to allow for uh, the Chola and Indian kind of um, uh, seafaring tradition to enter Australia in the ninth, sorry, 10th century uh, to 13th century. I wanted that to happen so that the indigenous or Aboriginal peoples of Australia could be inoculated a little bit uh, with certain kind of like uh, technological transfers and... Um, so that they could kind of better withstand further colonization as happened in real history. Mm. Uh, okay, but let's talk about that sea. If it was south opening inland, uh, it would make Australia a lot cooler and it would give it uh, the entire south coast of Mediterranean climate. But if you move it from the north in, 
you expose it to just warm tropical waters and an analog to this would be the Red Sea. The Red Sea has almost no impact on the Arabian Peninsula because of it's the Arabian Peninsula is in the horse latitudes, it's in the dry latitudes where rain can't fall. Australia is stuck in that similar situation. Because the Red Sea opens up into the equatorial warm waters area, uh, the currents don't benefit Australia. It doesn't create moisture conditions. So you have a micro kind of humidity along the coastline that will be good enough for savanna like steppe kind of semi-arid grass and trees but it won't have a major impact on the whole continent damn so is this map um at a particular historical period like is this contemporary because mm -hmm. you mentioned uh that uh you mentioned like the 10th century to 12th century right uh, so does does your world has a have a history and at what point in history are we right now? Okay, so uh, well, there's a good backstory to this. I was telling uh, your cousin this. Um, we uh, for a long time I wrote this with the idea that it would uh, be released in the 1950s. Like the the time that I would want to hold it at would be the 1950s, just after the Second World War, where like. The possibility of like a kind of like world a new world order of peace and like kind of like problem solving collectively would be more plausible but what happened was we went on that hiking trip uh this summer in you know, in 2020 and for, so it was it was a weird coincidence because for a long time my holding for the time my way of getting a uh my way of uh not addressing the time issue was saying in the year of the comment and it, mm -hmm. it, which just symbolizes uh, t uh, the precipice or like the com the harbinger of change, right? So like, uh, you know, Napoleon was supposed to be of, uh, heralded by a comet and Tecumseh or Tecumseh um, was supposed to also be, he, like his name literally refers to the comet, the same comet of Napoleon. So mm -hmm. in world history, a lot of like cultures uh, viewed the comet as the coming of change, uh, like for the worse probably. Uh and so I, I thought this would be a kind of a cool motif to play with. And so in, in what, June, July 2020? Oh, so, yeah, in 2020, we witnessed a comet. We witnessed a comet, yeah. But we, okay, so the funny thing is the two of us had no idea about the the incoming comet where we were. We're in the Pacific Northwest, by the way. Mm -hmm. We were on the Sunshine Coast and we were doing this hike and we had no access to any information from the outside and we hadn't read any astro mm -hmm. astrology stuff for, for weeks. So we had no idea that this comet was coming. What was the comet called? The real, uh, the real name. X one BZ twenty two zero zero. I don't know. But okay, well, we named the Desi. We named the Desi. Uh, it was a cool name because we we were in Desolation Sound, which is this really beautiful uh, inlet in the Sunshine Coast, and we were doing uh, the Malaspina hike. Uh, well, at that time, we were actually. Uh, oh, we uh, had, we were in Oakover Inlet. We were yeah, we were foraging for oysters. Yeah, we we're foraging for oysters and cockles and and mussels. Uh, and it, okay, what happened was in the evening, uh, we were gutting a rock cod. So we were forging the day and we were gutting a rock cod because our neighbors caught one and gave it to us when they found out we had never tried one. And they were Desi actually. Uh, yeah, they were Desi. Yeah, yeah, they were. Uh, so we're in Canada. We have a, a, a huge Punjabi Canadian population in Vancouver, um, which is where we're from. But anyway, so like they gave us the fish uh, because we had never tried it before and it was still flopping. So we went to the water, we gutted it. And the crabs were nipping at the flesh uh, as we were gutting it. It was a crazy experience, but it was so it was pitch dark, right? And so we looked up. There was the stars, 
And what happened was actually you went to bed after we ate the fish and I went back to brush my teeth. Mm-hmm. And as I was brushing my teeth, I looked up and I saw this huge smudge. It was really noticeable. And I was like, hey, that looks like a Wikipedia article image of what a comet is. And uh, so I went back. I tried to wake up my girlfriend and she didn't believe me. Then the next day I told everyone that we were hiking with and no one believed me because no one had heard anything about it. And at that time we were on the hike and yeah. we were actually camping at the most northern point of our uh, hike. So we had a, 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 a pure view. North, uh, north view of, uh, of the sky. Yeah, we had a pure north view. We were in a beautiful bay. We waited for the sun to set. It was a clear, it was clear skies. We saw the Milky Way. We saw like shooting stars. But the most important thing is we saw the smudge together, all of us. And so, yeah, we named the Desi. But anyway, so that moment, it was a long story, sorry. But that was the moment where I realized um, that, like, or, or where I had this idea that, you know, things were happening. It was like fate, you know. Like, I was like, oh, I, I had this whole thing on my map about the coming of a comet. So, so yeah, so I decided, to, long story short, I decided to release my map on the internet. But then I also decided that the timestamp or the, the time of the world would be 2020. 2020, okay, cool. But wait, let's talk about the setting. So like in the sense of like the the parallels to our universe. So in so in your world, I guess um, so in 2020 in your world, uh, based on what you were saying earlier, uh, European imperialism uh, was much less. Um, <laughs> okay. Just go for it. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. So let me just clarify then. So the 2020 thing is just actually an arbitrary number. But I guess you could say it's a good way to tell like how much time has passed for certain key moments. Because what I try to do in this project is align my world with key events in history. So the Reconquista, uh, Age of Discovery, or what I call Age of Exploration. All these kind of things still happen. Uh, but there are different also points of contact in history. So like, I'm sorry, there's also different points of transatlantic contact, for example. But the key ones in our world are still recognizable. So World War One, for example, still happens. World War Two still happens. Maybe slightly different mm-hmm. players. So twenty twenty, it means that much time has passed since World War Two, for example. So there was a second World War. There was a second World War, but it was a very different World War. I'll, I'll get to that. But first of all, uh, the point is the point is that twenty twenty does not imply the same technological advancement and cultural development. So for example, my twenty twenty. Uh, technology has been a little bit slower, so we're probably in the late 1980s. So we're just on the precipice of the digital age. So people are making changes, plastic is being used, uh, but for some reason, uh, cultural discourse has been a lot more kind of insular, but also there's there's globalization, but it's an alternate kind of globalization. Different kinds of transfers are happening. But the, po- the, po- the point is, aesthetically, yeah. we don't all become one t-shirt wearing culture so you do have globalization you do have contact between all these regions yeah but it's alter globalization so it's like a different kind of way of bringing the world together and so how do what's the common language that people speak because there is so much linguistic diversity you mean a lingua franca so that's a good question the lingua franca actually is sign language the lingua franca here is plains talk uh so it it was very interesting when i learned this because uh there's like two kind of trans national what do you call it yeah trans transnational languages or i forget i don't know how to describe this but basically you could write in chinese characters and languages from different language families even could understand each other at a a certain time in the 1940s for example koreans vietnamese chinese people and japanese people could write and understand each other without even having to speak 
sign language has that potential. Of course, people say every sign language that's been invented replicates the host language or the language that uh, it's been founded from. So there's an English sign language and then there's like a French sign language and it's supposed to parallel the linguistic dynamics of that language. But Plains Talk was interesting in that it was people signing while they were speaking in their native tongue uh, and they were all signing the same way. So they weren't directly translating their language. They were all, like let's say someone had a different uh, subject verb order, um, they would still sign in the universally accepted subject verb order of that Plains Talk. And so this was a very interesting thing to me. So diplomatically, you could see people speaking their own languages. Mm -hmm. It was very symbolic. You could see French people speaking to German people, but signing universally. And for example, uh, like people say that Japanese people have a harder time reading kanji because their subject verb order is different from Chinese. Um, but that is something that you can't get away from. So there will be some languages that are privileged in that their language aligns more with the dynamics of this kind of sign language. But um, I thought that was a small point. Mm -hmm. The other thing is there's a universal scripture. So it, just like how we have the international phonetic system uh, or uh, alphabet, IPA, um, it arose from a pragmatic point of view. It kind of arose from uh, linguistics being kind of like a Western-backed uh, academic pro um, project. And so a lot of the institutions in ling in linguistics come from, you know, the, the Latin speak Latin writing. So, you know, the alphabet writing, English speaking world. Um, but I wanted a truly universal way of representing sounds, phonology. And I thought it was really cool that this guy named Alexander Bell in the 1800s had come up with that. It was very similar to hang Hangul, uh, the Korean system in that the, the, purportedly the Koreans say that their writing system is logical and that it mimics the the or it describes or it represents the sound shapes uh the shapes of your mouth uh, when you're making certain sounds but this guy alexander bell took it to a whole nother level he invented this writing system that was supposed to be like you could take someone trained in it and they could read it uh they could read any language and pronounce it in that accent so someone who's never been exposed to japanese but has learned this alphabet could pronounce Japanese words with the proper intonation and everything, and the proper phonology. I want to know this. Yeah, this I want is, to learn this. Yeah, and and what's cool about it is the script actually looks very, very epic. It's mm. like it's very aesthetically pleasing too. Yeah. So what about geopolitics and economics in your world? So the point here is, power dynamics uh, throughout history mimic. Uh, power dynamics and on this map mimic the power dynamics uh, kind of flow that happened in our history, where the Europeans by the 17 and 1800s become predominant. But before that, uh, it was multipolar. And uh, I try to make this European moment less significant and their um, uh, increase in the, the increase in the power gap less drastic so that we get back to a multipolar world. So geopolitically, you have uh, a lot of regions with their own kind of uh, regional powers. And the United States is still kind of the first, like the United States is still the prevailing world power after, you know, Great Britain wanes uh, during World War II. But the United States, this is actually getting back to with the World War II thing. World War II happens kind of in an analog of a Korean war in our timeline, in our world. 
So in the Korean War, the, the Soviet Union actually abstained from voting in the Security Council. So you had the first time and one of the only times where the Security Council, like the UN actually backed a full-on military um, war effort, I guess, like a war uh, action. And so the Korean War was fought between the United Nations, really, not just the U.S., but the United Nations and North Korea. Um, and so World War II happens that way because World War One, the... I'm not, I don't think Woodrow Wilson will exist in this world, but uh, the equivalent person will be a lot more successful in uh, convincing domestic American politics to back a League of Nations analog. In this time, in this world, I call it the Society of Nations. But um, they, they kind of come in at the right time in that uh, the Belgian Congo and the Amazon rubber boom, these like kind of like first crimes against humanity. Like the Holocaust was not the first crime against humanity. There was many, many more. But like in the early 1900s, this was probably the the moment when Europeans could be finally sympathetic. You could actually like shove it in their faces. And so if you had this like a League of Nations start taking action in those things, it would be really cool. That's why I have these kind of mm. territorial zones where the mm. League or the society takes takes over. But really, so World War Two is fought between a coalition of allies that are like the Society of Nations, the League of Nations. Mm-hmm. And so that actually emboldens the kind of cosmopolitan ideal after World War Two. Mm, so in terms of uh, political structures, when you look at the map more closely, you have um, some uh, countries which are in, uh, in uh, blue. So do you have all of the countries you have are their states, and then you have confederacies, right? Right, right. Okay, well, let's, let's get to the blue one. The blue one. So, what what you what you're referring to are the blue texted territories. Yeah. And for me, though, uh, the way I did that was those are actually non claimed territories. Oh, right, so they're okay. not part of the the whole nation state system. So, like, don't get me wrong. I, I don't I don't care for the idea of a nation state, but we're using the political map medium. Um. And we're trying to represent as many languages and cultures as possible, though. So it kind of coincides. But anyway, here, these were areas where I, I knew there was no way I could meet that quota of getting one language of every family. Because these were di- diversity zones. And, for example, in the, in the Belgian Congo, you had not only, like, different languages, but you also had, like, pygmy populations. So-called pygmies, the like, a very distinct people who were marginalized during colonization and also before that. Uh, and then in the Amazon, you have uncontacted tribes. And I was very inspired by, you know, this idea of Funai protecting people from being contacted by, like, illegal loggers and, you know, um, miners and whatever in Brazil. Funai is this really uh, cool organization that kind of, like, has suffered a bit in the current political climate of Brazil. But they're the people, they're like rangers who go into the forest and they're, like, kind of, like, secretly watching people who have not been contacted with the outside world. So tr- so people who are still living uh, pre-contact traditions and cultural ways um and also there's like a very practical reason why they exist like funai exists it's because once contact happens the population of the contacted tribe will decrease by probably 80 percent due to disease and other but mostly disease Uh, anyway so i thought it would be really cool for the society nations in the like like the political ideals and kind of discourse in the early 1900s would allow for something like this um, because you had the League of Nations mandates and UN mandates in, in our history. So it, you could easily imagine the League of Nations or what I call society nations stepping in and going like, uh, kind of like taking these territories away from 
regimes that were you know inhuman uh, inhumane and so that's the creation of these kind of blue texted territories Mm -hmm. so each of them some kind of disaster happened that required international coordination so how many of these do you have three uh, no, I have quite a few, actually. For example, there's actually a non-territorial territory. Um, there's one called the Bajau Reserve. The Bajau are the, what are called sea nomads. And, you know, another term would be sea mm. gypsy. But they exist uh, south of the Sulu Archipelago, south of the Philippines and east of Borneo. And they have historically been subject to, like, piracy. Uh, or They've been subject, to, sorry, to ki- kidnapping. People would go and take advantage of them. They had no kind of land type settlements they kind of lived just off the coast in kind of uh stacks in the sea like like uh, platforms or they would just like lived in uh by migrating from one island or one atoll to another to another anyway so i have that um i have um the andaman islands still as a real place uh and i have um two in this equatorial africa the jaw reserve because of this is like interesting, very kind of hard to reach area right by the coast of Cameroon. It's really interesting. There's still like, if you go to Google Maps, it's very hard to find any roads into that area. Very hard to find settlements. And that's where actually a huge number of different uh, pygmy tribes still live. But they also live on the eastern banks of the Congo River too. So I have two reserves. Um, I have the Amazon. By the way, the, the term reserve is highly loaded. I'm just using it because it would probably be a plausible terminology mm-hmm. that would be accepted by right. the people the bureaucrats who do this thing i mean especially in the context of canada reserve has a yeah another implied meaning yeah anyway so then you have the kalahari in southern africa um uh and again you could see a, p- a potential historical moment when that would be like a plausible uh, intervention scene uh and then so there's just those and then there's these like few islands so i had like in the pacific i had like maybe because nuclear testing goes amok so you have the phoenix islands and then you have chernobyl which is called the zone of alienation because a real map i found online um actually showed it as the zone of alienation Mm -hmm. that's probably actually what the soviet union called it which just means that the the area that humanity has been alienated from the land Mm -hmm. it's a very marxist term i love i love it yeah, so confederacies. How did you? Um, why did you choose to create confederacies in in this world? Yeah, so I guess like there's confederacies and and, and federal nations or federal states. So, obviously, the United States is a is kind of more of a homogenous federal state, but in certain areas, I used a federated state because there's like a very it was very hard to get all that diversity linguistically at least into the nation state model. You'll notice that in East Africa, in the Horn of Africa, I, I made it into a bunch of states, East Africa. Um, and and it's, there's a plausible reason for that, which is, uh, let's say in our world, when the Ottoman Empire um, and let's say Austro-Hungarian empires, when they collapsed, a lot of new states uh, formed. That's actually one of the ways I created all these nation states, which was that in history, the losers would lose less, but they would keep being folded into these kind of imperial regimes like they like in our world in our history but what happened is in the age of nations in like the nation state era the the kind of mass release of new nation states was a lot more liberal or like happened a lot better so a lot more people got to be released a lot more people's got self-autonomy so you can imagine let's say like an ethiopian type empire collapsing and all these nation states coming out 
especially if you have some kind of like society of nations or league of nations analog uh doing this kind of policing where they wouldn't allow colonial powers to step in and gobble everything up because you know after the ottoman empire failed for example or collapsed you had britain and france eager to collect all the things that came out of it right and you had all these like nation states that existed for like one or two years Mm -hmm. anyway so let's go back to the confederacies and federal federalism so in terms of federalism um i found areas where i was like okay maybe i don't want to do that mass release thing and it'd be kind of cool to explore an idea of like a multi-tiered uh uh, state and so peru and, and and mexico were those areas where i decided to do that um and then the united states is just it's real world analog in australia similar it was like i could have just made it a nation state model but i just decided to have it australia here is called tasmania sorry uh but then confederacies mean a different thing for me confederacies are kind of like the european union mixed with a federal uh governing system and that's in the sense that they are confederated um they're confederated in the sense that their economies are insular but in us in the same open market uh arrangement and the only difference between them and the european union is that they probably share uh like a kind of a military alliance that's more formal or they and they share like a a global they share um the same kind of international relations so their kind of international politics is funneled through the same kind of branch of government instead of each one doing their own kind of um, maneuverings. Yeah, so just to come back on on the idea of uh, preserving at least one language from one language family. Uh, So in this world, one nation state could have more than one language. Like a confederacy could have more than one language spoken. Yeah, okay, so that's a good idea. So a good question. So uh, for the confederacy, it was that each of the territorial units in a confederacy are like a European country in the European Union. So they're like a full-fledged um, kind of uh, cultural area. Um, for example, um, in California, the California of this map, the different territorial units represent like a fully functioning uh, countries, kind of like Scotland is in the United Kingdom. Uh, it's interesting here in that if you look at the plains, there's no territorial delineations. And that's because the the confederacy of the of the the grand prairie confederacy um i was quite inspired by uh when i might i had a trip to mongolia when i was really young uh to see that their postal service and how all that worked because they were they were still uh, functionally nomadic other than ulan batar uh the rest of the population which is like a small minority compared to the city but the rest of the population was still nomadic and so they had a very different understanding of dealing with uh territoriality within their borders and so I thought it'd be cool if there would be a multiple overlapping um, territorial sharing in the plains where all these like different um, horse cultures uh, still exist. Uh, but, you know, they're brought to the modern world as well, but they still preserve a lot of that because Mongolia still pres- is, is still a horse culture in the modern world. You know, they're not stuck in the past, but they still embrace that element of themselves. Mm-hmm. And so like the postal service... Uh, is very different in Mongolia. And so um, it's the same here in that like these different nations that make up the Great Plains Confederacy have overlapping territories, which is very different from the nation state model. 
mm-hmm. and the confederate and the normal confederated nation state model. Mm-hmm. Uh, so do you have a way of distinguishing that visually in the map? Or? Uh, no, not not for the Great Plains, but I know uh, in my manuscript I've delineated which languages are like the main um, right. state-backed languages. Now, now going back to the idea of like multiple languages, multiple languages, multiple languages existing in a nation state. Here's the problem. So, because I'm working with this medium of the nation state, you know, like fr- think of French republicanism. These kind of like uh, ideas still pervade. So we have this kind of ultra globalization that like this mutual understanding across cultures, at an international level. But think of our own world where we have like let's celebrate diversity, let's celebrate like internationalism. But people really think of that in a nation state model kind of sense. They take that perspective. They go like, let's learn about German culture. Let's learn about Polish culture. Let's learn about let's learn about Russian culture. They're all like the culture and the state are coterminous when we do that. Um, and that's because of this kind of idea of republicanism that happened in the 1800s. Uh, because before that, a lot of countries, like a lot of states that existed were like very uh, linguistically diverse to the hamlet level or to the parish you know to the village level but that all changed after like these kind of like uh, republican ideas and republican uh, revolutions france is the biggest example of that where like almost all the languages that exist in france disappeared uh within like one generation because of that idea of france for french anyway so uh, minorities still exist here and whatever treatment minorities would get in our world is the same it's the same that's what I'm trying to say here. So let's say the United States, uh, the Native Americans or the indigenous peoples that exist in the American, uh, the United States of this world, the ones that fall in that those boundaries, their politics are still the same as the real world. And it's the same for like Brazil. Let's say if you look at Brazil, there's like the Shingu Reserve, but the, 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 the peoples that exist within Brazil have the same political struggle. It's not worse, but it's the same political climate. There are places where you will see there's obvious overlaps. Let's say like Valencia, uh, Valencia in Spain. Valencia is a Catalan speaking city, but in, in this timeline, in this map, Valencia belongs to the Castilian Spain. And so um, it's like its local culture will be in the same health or in the same condition as our world. So it's kind of like caught in this mm-hmm in between state and like people can foresee maybe in a few generations it might you know be eroded so what about uh your decision making and choosing the toponyms for all these countries right so here's the funny thing i'm, I'm trying to be i'm trying to be uh i'm trying to show people really cool things that exist in our world but that are hidden because of the way we understand geography now uh, but I still wanted to have some kind of invert universe logic and realism. So that meant that um, I was working in the Western cartographic medium, you know, like a map making from English, but then European tradition. So that meant a lot of the names in Eurasia and North Africa, let's say, uh, parts of East Africa. I tried to use the logic of... Um, what was historically the trajectory, which is that they they used name exonyms. They used foreign like for foreign people invented names for the peoples in other places. Okay, so I had this like long debate with someone in about the German 
or like Spain. Let's say Spain and Germany to be like, there's no way Spain could exist if it doesn't have Navarre and Aragon or whatever. Well, it doesn't really matter what people think of the of the name of their country themselves. China doesn't exist as a word. It, there's no parallel word of China in Chinese, right? So the exonym, the way that an exonym is coined is is has nothing to do with the way the people there see themselves. And the Germans are an interesting example in that all of their neighbors have different deri- uh, differently derived exonyms for the Germans. Uh, and just like the Greeks too. The Greeks, like Arabs, called them like Ionians, for example. Like there's like, it depends on the historical moment of contact. And so... Can you give some examples? So yeah, for, for Eurasia, let's say like uh, the Mediterranean Basin area, all of those names come from like the more uh, ant- antiquated, antiquated Roman Greco kind of tradition. Uh, and I was noticing actually like Venetian cartographers in the 1500s, let's say when they were dealing with the Ottomans, there were Venetians in the Red Sea. There were Venetians all the way down in the Horn of Africa in the 1500s or like even early 1400s before Portugal and Spain went to India, Venetians were already like steadily in contact, in contact with people across the Indian ocean. And they were still using the old and antiquated Roman Greco-Roman names for a lot of the places in the world. That's why we have things like Tartary and Cathay. These are like ant- antiquated names even when they were used they were no lo- they no longer made sense. But it, it represented how these Europeans, these Venetians saw the world. And for example, the Venetians were pulling up um, names of tribes that the Romans encountered in North Africa. They would, they would still record places in North Africa with these antiquated names when the demographic or like the cultural landscape of that area has shifted beyond recognition. So I just thought it'd be kind of cool to preserve that kind of logic because I don't really like this kind of makeshift. I mean, I understand that knowledge creation is pragmatic, like, like knowledge is created um, because it's, it's an organic process. But um, I didn't really like, uh, I guess this is like a personal flaw of mine. I, I wanted some more analytical uh, consistency. So I thought it'd be interesting in that different periods of time, you would see the names of the Western tradition, like West, the Western cartographic tradition shift in the way they, um, the way they uh, gave names to peoples around the world. So you can see with the age of exploration, when the Spanish and Portuguese go out, they abandon that old kind of Greco-Norman, uh, Greco-Roman world and have a different mindset in how they would name things. They named it after like properties, like like uh well okay they, they 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 didn't use Latin anymore. They used like their own languages, or they might transliterate the the native names, and it might be really bad. It might have been a bastardization. They might have just used the word waterfall to describe this whole area. Um, but yeah, so and then uh, once you get to like India and uh, East Asia, you'll notice that in in our history too. The names are very, very much a, a reflection of the power relations at that time. When the Europeans started going to the Indian Ocean and the, into the East China Sea, they saw themselves uh, not more powerful. Maybe culturally they thought they were superior, as most cultures do when they encounter others. But they knew that they didn't have that they had either technological parity or they couldn't even um, compete. And so, in those cases, the namings were a lot more. Uh, placating to the peoples that they were describing so they were just transliterating almost exclusively uh, other than using the word like Cathay they were transliterating and Cathay actually is a transliteration of a, just an antiquated uh, people but 
they were just exclusively transliterating all the Chinese provinces. They were asking Chinese people, what do you call this? What do you call this? Instead of mm-hmm. going like, I will name this. Which is why North Africa, for example, has a lot of... Antiquated names. Antiquated Greek sounding... Yeah. And, mm-hmm. It just means that they were steadily in contact right. through, like in the more early periods. So, for example, China. Yeah. You said that China doesn't mean anything in, in China or in Mandarin. Yeah. Uh, so why do, you, why do you choose China as a country in that, this case? That, that, that was one term I just decided to just stick with, I guess. That, mm-hmm. that I couldn't really... Um, yeah, no, I, I just kept... Because, for example, the idea of, of a Chinese state, even in Mandarin, was kind of coined by the ruling dynasty at the time, the Qing mm-hmm. dynasty, where they decided to describe it as a central kingdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, historically, people just described the country based on the dynasty that claimed it so the Ming country the, or, or the Qing country or whatever so yeah, um, yeah. yeah I don't yeah, know th- I, I don't think this map would work well on, on Weibo or any Chinese social media actually uh, so I met a lot of uh, Asian people on, on the internet but they, they're all part of the diaspora but I met like yeah. mainland Chinese people like living in the United States for example who are quite interested in this because uh, they have a hard time understanding the diversity that exists in their own country. So for them, mm. they, like if you tell them that this is not like a roadmap to uh, multiple secessionist movements, then they'll accept it. They'll they'll be like, oh, this is a cool way of learning about. Yeah. Well, the Chinese, the Communist Party definitely. Would. Yeah, they wouldn't. Yeah, <laughs> but like I said, this is not like a roadmap to secession oh, for yeah, everyone. Of yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Should we wrap it up or? Yeah, I think we can. Yeah, I think there's some material. Damn. I was actually. <laughs> yeah, I had a que- I had a question. Yeah, and then I got too much into what you were saying. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't even think that any of that is going to make it into the cut because that's like way too nerdy and too. No, but I think that was good. Like okay. I was, I, I was thinking. Okay.